Hello there, and welcome to Gooner U. My name is Dove, and my friend Keith is here to bring me up to speed on everything I don't know about soccer and Arsenal. This week, we're covering Premier League match number seven versus the Brentford Bees, as well as my own 5v5 pickup game I participated in yesterday. So, hello, Keith. Hello, now experienced member of the beautiful game. Yeah, well, now more recently experienced <laughs> member. It had been about 25 years since I last played. So not never, but a long, long time ago in a nearby galaxy, fortunately. So um, before we get to that, uh, just a couple follow-up items from last week that I wanted to cover. I did watch a Panenka compilation. I stuck it in the last episode's show notes, and that was amusing. Thank you. <laughs> Also, um, you corrected me very early on on the pronunciation of UEFA, and you said UEFA, and I proceeded throughout the rest of the episode to still say, like, UEFA. I, I was <laughs> making the U silent, sort of. It was kind of like in, I guess in Spanish, maybe you would pronounce it UEFA if it was spelled like that. But I have now learned, and I am saying UEFA, and that was yep. actually a, a chapter title, so... And you'll it'll it'll just start to roll off the tongue, and you'll realize you you will never remember a world world where you couldn't pronounce UEFA or CONCACAF or any of these other oh boy. fun international acronyms. Yeah, I don't know what that one is, but let's let's not go there yet. <laughs> <laughs> so so I played a game of soccer yesterday. Um, it was not super competitive, but it was definitely uh, athletically rigorous. For, for for me. Um, I played keeper the whole time as I intended to. I had gloves. I had shorts that I don't think any professional keeper uses, but for amateurs like myself, they have uh, padded hips. So when you dive, you're less likely to injure yourself. Um, I was wearing cleats. It was, uh, it was a good time. I, I had a blast doing it. I think I turned in a pretty decent performance and I am paying with it in every fiber of every muscle in my body today. <laughs> <laughs> That's not because of the game. It's just because you're old. Well, it's a combination. <laughs> it definitely helps me appreciate these guys who do it even more intensely and for even longer than I did. We we overall played probably 75 to 80 minutes with, with a few breaks in there. Uh, we, we, we broke it. We intended to break it into halves. Uh, the scoring was interesting. The first round we played till, uh, we played until five points. And then we, I think intended to do the same thing the next round, but then once we tied four, four, we took a break and then went back, uh, to say first to three. So my, my side ended up losing, um, but I did have a bunch of notable saves, I was told by my five-year-old son that I am a bad goalie for two reasons. Um, I fell on the ground a lot <laughs> to him. That is a bad thing. And I use my hands. Uh, those are both soccer no-nos, apparently, to to my five-year-old. So he still has much to learn. <laughs> well, I, I was about to say, I'll tell you what. He's starting off with the, be the best lesson as a young player, which is don't use your hands. Because at his age, do they, yep. do they even have keepers at his age group? Not really. He he likes playing goalie. He says he wants to be keeper, but then on Saturday when given the opportunity against his, like they were just doing a, scrim a scrimmage. The most that they do is a scrimmage with their own team in, right. in our U6 division here. And as soon as he got the ball, he was just running with it. And like all the kids were trailing behind him because he was dribbling it surprisingly well. He's done a lot better in the last year than uh, than he did uh, the previous fall. And he scored three times unopposed. Um, but yeah, the, the nets were wide open. Of and course. even though he had stated that he wanted to play goalie, he did not. Yesterday, uh, during our first break, I did not get a break because he wanted to be goalie in the big net that we were using. So I was shooting on him instead of, instead of keeping during the break. 
Well, I, I also want to add just how odd it is to hear you hear a five year old say, "No, rolling on the ground is a bad thing." <laughs> you you don't know him that well. He he he's kind of like me. He doesn't like getting dirty. He doesn't like. I'd uh, say he definitely he definitely is your son. <laughs> yep. Um, so it was funny. Some of the things that we'd actually talked about on this show came up and uh, were completely forgotten by me. Um, a ball was passed to me by my team, by a teammate. I proceeded to pick it up <laughs> and throw it and was reminded, oh, hey, you know, when your team passes it to you, you aren't supposed to do that. And I said, oh, yeah, thank you. I forgot. I didn't add later, although it occurred to me to do so. Like, hey, I, I actually did know that uh, I have it in audio record form. <laughs> I've listened to the podcast. Um, but yeah, so uh, that was noted. And I mean, some of the things that surprised me just from a lack of recent practical experience, that ball is heavy. Like when, when I see like Ramsdale, like hurling it, he gets it really far. Even just kicking it <laughs> any significant distance is way, way harder and maybe it's just maybe at least part of it is because the grass was not as well tended to as as a professional field, but um, it's definitely not all that. You know, it's 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 definitely a lot of work, and I need to work on technique with that. the The thing that I think stuck with me the most that I was trying to train myself or retrain myself on the most was not just watching the ball like a hawk, which I, I take to naturally, but making sure that I'm also equally like just keeping my eyes peeled in all directions because most of the time the shot doesn't come from the guy who's dribbling the ball towards you. <laughs> it's from the guy directly next to you that you didn't see until it's too late. Right. And that's, and that's a general good rule. Something that new sports watchers always, the, the quote unquote mistake they make, it's sort of the obvious thing is you watch the ball. And, and part of that's because when you're watching on TV, the camera will always follow the ball. But as you, as you watch more and more, you start to watch more of what's going on around that. And you can start to, it, 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 you start to feel clairvoyant. You can predict, <laughs> you know, oh, there's the open man. That's where the pass should go. And then you get really angry. Why didn't he make that pass? Okay. Well, it wasn't what was supposed to happen. But yeah, you, you start to learn that there's much more. It's some ways it's much more interesting what's happening away from the ball than the ball itself. Right. Right. And I think in, in this game, more than most others, uh, where that really is, it's just a matter of getting somebody free enough that they can be passed to so then they can they can score. Um, it was also <laughs> so one thing that I wanted to ask about, there was a whole lot of back and forth just kind of calling out like, hey, this guy's open, pass to him, like a, a lot of that. And I'm realizing it, my first thought was, oh, that's that's it's just an informal game. The professionals don't do that. And then my second thought was, well, actually, no, maybe they do, but they're just not mic'd and we're just not hearing it on a telecast. Do you know uh, to what degree do the players on the field verbally communicate with each other for ball movement? Oh, yes, there, there's there's a lot of communication. It's it's very different kind because remember, they've been practicing together. And so it's not usually about. You'll see at times guys waving their hands in the air. I'm open. I'm open. But mm -hmm. it's it's moments like that. They don't have to constantly remind each other where to go because that's what practice is for: is to learn the spaces sure. to fill in, and so that you can you can do that sort of without saying it. Uh, that being said, there's there's a lot of communication. It also a lot of times will come from the sideline, and so you'll see the managers there usually waving, and it's 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 simple things: push up, be more aggressive. It's it's not really very complicated. Mm -hmm. And then of course they're doing this all in in 
full stadiums with crowds you know screaming and chanting and it's just it's a different environment but they they are communicating especially those little things the the famous line or the famous phrase i remember is even in youth rec soccer was man on the idea is you have the ball someone's coming towards you so it's a warning hey you need to pass it right man on means you're being you're being you're about to be pressured you need to get rid of the ball or at least prepare yourself for for someone trying to tackle it off of you Something else uh, I was trying to learn and started getting it toward the very end of play. Uh, so we were, we were pretty explicit, not, not in terms of language, but in terms of, uh, I guess, the original meaning of the word, but uh, in who, in terms of who we were going to be passing it to. So I'd call out a name, like making sure that they were ready, making sure they were paying attention, ready to receive the ball for me. And I started noticing that definitely the other team was picking up on that and would start closing on the person that I was very heavily indicating I was going to be throwing to, whether through body language or by calling out the person's name. And I started using that to my advantage and kind of faking in one direction and throwing it to a different person, started to be more aware as I started getting comfortable with some of the simpler things. So that, that was all fun. I'm looking forward to my next match. Um, the one thing, uh, as far as keeping that definitely, uh, carried over into the Brentford match was I heard multiple times when they were talking about some of, uh, Raya's saves, the keeper for Brentford, they mentioned strong hand, strong hand. I said that uh, at least two or three times during the course of the game. And I, it, it seems like a weird phrase, except it didn't at all to me because I remembered the one goal that was shot to- in my direction yesterday I got a hand on it, a pretty solid hand on it, and it still blew past me and went into the goal. (laughs) So when they are complimenting a strong hand, I I know what that means, and I will try to have a stronger hand in the future. So, Yeah, I mean, you you see, you know, the ideal as a keeper, of course, is to catch the ball, but you see so many times they'll just have to palm it away, and you realize how hard it is once it's coming at you and you're in that position, how hard it is to actually catch some of those balls and Sometimes it takes everything you have just to push it in a slightly different direction. Right. In that particular circumstance for me, I was only able to reach it with one hand. It was in, it was at the limit of my reach. So I I had like one hand that was able to get over to it in time and that was it. And yeah. And and a lot of things that we, we talked about in prior episodes came up where, yeah, definitely most of the time, by the time it gets to me, my team (laughs) has failed me to one degree or another. They left somebody open. They missed a chance to get it away from them or, or whatever it was. Uh, yeah, all that came to bear. It was, uh, I definitely did better for our talks than I would have without them. So, so thank you. <laughs> um, so redirecting to the match, this just happened yesterday. It was match number seven on September 18th, 2022. The final score, I am pleased to say, was Arsenal beating Brentford 3-0. That was uh, an exciting game to watch. It was They were, they were dominant, again, <laughs> as I've become mostly accustomed to. Um, do you want to begin our discussion with the circumstances under which we watched this game with its schedule? Right. So the, the start time was pushed up slightly. Uh, I believe only by a half hour, actually, but it was pushed up slightly as a result of the Queen's funeral, which we are recording on Monday. So that was earlier today, American time. Uh, but what that meant was, and this is this is something you get used to when you watch soccer in Europe, at least when you watch it live, is that meant for me here in Houston, uh, the game kicked off at six o'clock in the morning, uh, which it will happen a few times a year. And it's it's a 
it's a fun group of diehards that show up at six o'clock in the morning, uh, especially for a game against <laughs> Brentford, who is not a particularly not a particularly high profile opponent. Now, I believe in a couple of weeks we're going to play uh, arch rivals Tottenham Hotspur at six thirty a.m. I expect a slightly more lively crowd at that point, but you know that's there. Every game's a little different depending on the circumstances. So yeah, I was curious about that. So you did actually go to the pub that early, and there were people there. Uh, that, yep. That's interesting to me. Yep, they're uh, they're diehards. Yeah, so that's 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 cool. That's that's great. It's got it's got to have a funny feeling. It's probably similar to when I've had to work really late or go into work really early for some kind of special project or something. Like it's it's a bonding experience. I it's imagine. it's a very different kind of crowd at the at that hour. Let's just so you can say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for me, the match was while I was playing my game, the, this match was going on and I didn't get to watch it live, which I don't think I necessarily would have been able to anyway, since I don't have a cable subscription, I'm a cord cutter. Uh, so I managed to watch it throughout the day today, bits and pieces here and there, whenever I could watching on my iPad and that was different for me. It's my first time not watching it sitting in front of a TV on the big screen. And I definitely didn't have my full attention on it as much of a time either. <laughs> so that was that was interesting. I, I feel it was a slightly poorer experience, but certainly better than not watching it at all. And uh, and it was it, I still caught all the all the exciting moments. I always saw the goal happen pretty much. I don't I don't think I was relying on the replay for any of them. So so that was good. Um, so my first question with the game, there, both of the goals in the first half were headers into the net. And that led me to wonder, do they track assists in soccer the way that you would in hockey or basketball or other sports aimed at getting a ball into a goal? Oh, yes, they do. Uh, in fact, I okay. just pulled up as, as we were talking about this, I pulled up the... Uh... The Premier League's uh, league leaders in assists, uh, our very own Bukayo Saka, is second in the league with four assists on the season. Hmm. Um, Kevin De Bruyne of Manchester City has six, which makes sense when he's passing the ball to Erling Haaland, who has 11 goals, which is just terrifying. (laughs) Gosh, he's so good. This early in the season, 11 goals already? Yes. he had uh, this, The, ne- the wow. second highest scorers are, are Harry Kane and Alexander Mitrovic, who both have six. Huh. So wow. yes, Howland is Howland is a monster, and that's a very very terrifying. But we don't have to worry about him for a while. <laughs> um, but just looking at the top ten here, just on the league's website, Bukayo Saka is uh, second with four, and then uh, Gabriel Jesus and Granit Xhaka are part of a giant tie for third with three apiece. Hmm. Okay. Cool. Good to know. Because yeah, you can definitely give them credit for those goals, but it, it didn't. I didn't see it mentioned in any on-screen graphics anywhere. So yeah, that's why it, I wanted to check. Right, and and it just holds a different place. And and I can speak to this a little better as as someone who's actually a, a hockey fan as well. In, in hockey, they always track the two assists, which are basically the last two players to touch the puck before the goal scorer does, assuming they're mm-hmm. all on the same team. Um. Whereas in soccer, it's only what they call the primary assist. So Xhaka made the, it was Xhaka who made the pass that, that Jesus finished off for the goal. Right. Um, so he gets the assist on that, but the guy who passed it to Xhaka, that doesn't count for anything. Yeah. And just, there's a, just generally a tradition in, in soccer. They, they track assists. Certain players are well known for their assists, but it, it, it's not in the same way that, that hockey religiously tracks them and adds them with goals to make a, a point statistic. They don't get, they're not considered the same way. 
uh, there. But okay. a little bit more like basketball is if you're really good at it, people notice. Otherwise, it's just a number that you have. Right. Just continuing the thread of penalties and what is and is not a penalty, I found it interesting. Martinelli was on the defensive side of the field and chasing down someone with the ball. I don't remember which player from Brentford, but chasing him down and got got pretty aggressive. They were they were going back and forth a lot, and no penalty was called. Uh, do you recall that play? I I don't. Um, I think generally speaking, what you see a lot of cases is the general inconsistency that will drive the fan of any sport crazy. That's not a foul, but the same play on the other end of the field somehow is a foul. Uh, it could be all manner of things from a distance. It looks different. It looks really bad, but up close, maybe it doesn't look so bad. Maybe the referee's position on the play, he doesn't see it quite as clearly. So he can't make that call. Mm-hmm. So it could be a lot of those different things, or it could just be, could just be error, but I, I don't recall anything particularly egregious although to be fair part of that is because arsenal pretty much controlled the game from beginning to end well yeah so it's hard to get too angry about stuff like that when it's when you win so so handily yeah uh so next question brentford's keeper at one point was nearly touching the midfield line and that was very surprising to me i i don't I didn't see, they didn't show the whole movement from being closer to goal to getting all the way out there, but I had a tough time figuring out exactly why he would have gone that far afield. That seems unusual to me. Uh, a lot of that's going to have to be a, a tactical decision about where he's supposed to stand, it, it, depending on possession in different different cases. If Brentford wants to push forward, they'll push what they call a high line. So the defenders will be very far upfield or, or everyone will be much further upfield. And the keeper is part of that as well. I, I don't recall particularly any moment where he was at the center. I didn't really notice that. But sometimes you'll see that. So he's there as an outlet for the defenders if the ball needs to come back there towards them. Uh, and But if, if Arsenal were to get possession and come the other way, he now is in a dead sprint back to his goal. Well, yeah, exactly. And that, right, that to me was the big concern. Like, oh my goodness, all it takes is one decent pass and or steal. And yeah, he's he's in big trouble. Well, let me ask, when in the game, when in the game did you notice that? What was the score? It was certainly, uh, it was certainly after Arsenal had scored at least one goal. It was, I think it was probably in the second half. Okay. Well, that, okay. So I, so I think they had two, I think we had two goals in the first half. So in that case, yes, it could be a sense were, of, yeah. It could be a sense of desperation. You know, we we need a goal. We need to do something. And that's the price you pay. We saw that a little bit in the previous game against Manchester United. Arsenal tried to push more and more forward. And United's a much better team than Brentford is, even though Brentford beat them 4-0, which is just delightful. But you saw how United was able to break on the counter very effectively. That's what they were trying to do, sitting back and absorbing pressure. In a sense, that's what Arsenal was prepared to do there because Brentford has to be desperate and you have to push for a goal. And if you don't score, you give up the goal. Well, that's the price you pay for that kind of aggression. It, it Not scoring is worse than giving up another goal. Right. Yeah, makes sense. I was laughing during one part of a telecast. The camera focused on some people in the crowd. And I was thinking to myself, that looks like Coach Beard from the show Ted Lasso that we've talked about a few times. And then I hear the announcers saying, yeah, and here's some members from the cast of Ted Lasso. 
It's like, oh, it is him. But I think why I didn't recognize him is because Jason Sudeikis did not look particularly lasso-like sitting next to him. He had a lot of stubble and was wearing some strange sunglasses, but that, that was kind of funny. Yes, we we, I, we we did. We all got a kick out of that once we realized uh, who it was. Uh, apparently, uh, the actor, whose name I had to look up, Brendan Hunt, yeah. uh, Coach Beard, is an Arsenal fan. Oh, okay. And joins a, a rather long line of tradition, the unimpeachable source that is Wikipedia's page for Arsenal FC supporters. <laughs> uh, Arsenal is, you know, is, is somewhat glamorous. It's a big club. They're based in London. So they are one of the more popular clubs, certainly in in England and and really worldwide, and, you know, it's reports they're one of the they're one of the largest uh, international fan bases, and certainly have a tremendous number of celebrity fans, including allegedly this is only a rumor, but allegedly <laughs> the Queen herself was supposedly an Arsenal fan. Hmm. There is also rumors that she was a, a fan of West Ham United, both of which are plausible. More, more likely, I believe, uh, Prince Harry is. It's a little more well known that he is an Arsenal supporter. Hmm. Okay, that actually reminds me of something that I've been intending to ask about, and I feel it was relevant enough. What is the team in the Premier League that you feel the um? that PFC Richmond in the show is most closely based on? If you had to pick one team that you could drop PFC Richmond in for, which team do you think that is? Um, so the obvious comparison, I think, right off the bat, is going to be Crystal Palace. Uh, based okay. in London, never really achieved a whole lot of success. Uh, they also, their colors are red and blue. They, the, the Richmond's stadium is, is filmed at Selhurst Park, which is... Crystal Palace's stadium. Hmm. Um, they probably fit in a longer tradition. A club like Fulham is going to be similar in recent years, what they call a yo-yo club, sort of at the bottom of the Premier League or the top of the championship. So he's bouncing up and down, relegated, promoted, mm -hmm. relegated, promoted. Um, you know, Ful Fulham for a while, I mean, you know, fascinating history of Fulham in about the mid 2000s had a reputation uh, as, as being full America, as they called it, had a number of prominent American players uh, Brian McBride, Carlos Bocanegra, most famously Clint Dempsey, who is the joint all-time leading scorer for the U.S. national team, played uh, for Fulham for a couple of years. And so there's a, a definitely a bulk of Fulham supporters in the U.S., more than you would expect for a club like them because of how many Americans actually played there. The, the closest one you can look at now is probably uh, Leeds United, who is coached by Jesse Marsh, who's an American. Uh, who who is regularly compared to Ted Lasso in the press, partly because he has a, a an enthusiastic and generally positive outlook, but also because it's just an easy comparison to make. Um, <laughs> they also do have a handful of American players. Um, Brendan Aris, Aronson is one. Uh, the big one, and you'll appreciate this, is a, a key starter for the U.S. national team, Tyler Adams, who is actually from Wappingers, New York, and a graduate hmm. of Ketchum High School. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. So look out for look out for him in Qatar for the World Cup. He's very he's very right. Good. Oh, cool. Yeah, I competed against Ketchum in math league. <laughs> so yeah, no, cool. It's uh, that's interesting. It's it's especially interesting because I know at least Crystal Palace was a team that they did play in the show. So that's that's kind of funny. I be I believe, and I feel like we talked about this. I believe that the first game they play in the in the show is they play Palace, and that makes sense because of course they're using the, the stadium. So it seems like the obvious one. To start oh, with. sure. Um, but every yeah. every other team they've played against that they name is is real. So yeah. you, most of them, you, of course, you'll see. 
here in the here in the league. So there was the 15 year old player who they brought out toward the end just for the purpose of setting a record. I guess that he was by four days. I think they said the youngest player ever in the top flight football for England. He was 15 years old and uh, 181 days or something like that. But a 15 year old on a professional sports team of any kind just sounds nuts to me. Yeah, he's uh, yeah, that's that's impressive. We we were again sort of marveling that we looked up his birthday is March 21st, 2007. Mm-hmm. Which I, I, you know, to date myself slightly, I was a senior in college when he was born. Right. We talked before about you being old during the game. Now you feel old. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as far as why he came in, you know, the comments from Arteta after the game where he's played really well uh, in practice, he's looked really good. Uh, Arsenal's bench is a little light, so you'll see a lot of the play spots at the end of the bench being given over to some of these younger guys who really are youth players. They probably aren't expecting to play, but in a game where you're completely in control, it's 3-0. It's a reward for a young player who has apparently been looking really good in practices, has done really well on the training ground. It's a reward, and and it sends a message to everyone else that says, you know, look, this is a team where competition matters. If you play well, you have a chance to get on the field. Uh, in, in a sense, no matter your age. I mean, if, even if he didn't set the record, if he was five days older and wasn't setting the record, yeah, I mean, he's 15. I know. I mean, I remember where I was when I was 15, and it was not as a <laughs> professional athlete, professional anything for that matter. <laughs> I actually was a professional something at that point, but not athlete. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, I got into software development professionally when I was by 15. I've been doing it for a couple of years already. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> it is really impressive, um, you know, and, and it's 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 cool. It's a cool thing to see. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, so closing out the discussion of this uh, Brentford match from yesterday, do you have any other uh, comments or observations? Uh, really, I just feel that we need to talk about uh, the goal scorers. William Saliba was excellent again. It's it's incredible how do, good do, he's do, been. Do, do, do. Yes, <laughs> Saliba, uh, and then and then particularly the the Fabio Vieira's goal, that is an unsavable shot. Yeah, really amazing. Yeah, that is unreal. Yeah. to be able to do that. How many heads did that ball travel over? <laughs> uh, and, and the the bend. I mean, that's you know the that's the ideal of a shot. You get when it hits the post like that. There is there isn't a keeper in the world who can stop that. Just a, just. Just top class. Yeah, definitely. That was that was impressive. And it really just a game that from I mean by the by the by the 70th minute we we kind of stopped paying attention and we're just talking about random things with the game on in the background because it was over. <laughs> they, they, Brentford yeah. really never threatened. Um, you know, Arsenal was in control of the game, which is which is what you want against a team like Brentford, who at best is probably going to be middle of the table. It's a great win to send us into the break. Um, Great performances for Vieira stepping in for Martin Odegaard. Kieran Tierney continues to look more comfortable. Uh, obviously, it's not good that Zinchenko is hurt and out, but Tierney looks more and more comfortable in what he's being asked to do. Thomas Party was back and played well. Gabriel Jesus is still a terror. Uh, just, just a, just it, it was a bright sunny day. There was really nothing to to be bothered by in this game. Honestly, right? It's delightful. I started noticing. 
when, when you when you mentioned Jesus just now, he gets this look on his face every time that there's either a penalty that he wants called against someone who who hit him in some way, or when he is being accused of a penalty that he's contesting, he gets this look, his eyebrows form this like L shape. <laughs> he's got this like most possibly plaintive look you could imagine. He does have a, a certain kind of expressive face, which is one of those that when he plays, <laughs> when he played for Manchester city was so annoying, but now he plays for Arsenal. So he's obviously right. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> So moving on to our list of questions that we didn't have time to get to uh, during the last episode or two. Uh, first on the list is in as brief terms as possible. What positions are there? What do they generally mean? And if it helps, because I realize there's probably latitude w- within these positions. How are they played in Mikel Arteta's Arsenal club? Okay. Yeah. So there are really four, we can think of them as almost four layers so from, from back to front. There's the keeper. Then you have the defenders, of which there are uh, what are called the center backs, the two in the middle of the line uh, the, of the defense, and then the, uh, the full backs who are on the outside. Then you have the midfielders. Okay. And midfielders are gener- can generally be considered attacking midfielders, advanced midfielders, like an Odegaard, or a defensive midfielder like Thomas Partey. And then you have the wings or the wide players. And then up top, you have the forwards uh, who can be, again, wings. Bukayo Saka, Gabriel Martinelli will play as wings, uh, in, as forwards. And then in the center of the forward line is the striker. Okay. Within Arteta's system, Arteta has typically been playing, and I'm, I'm going to butcher this and our fans are going to get after me on this, has effectively been playing what's called a... Normally, positions are named by the number of players in each row. So Arsenal more or less, ideally would play what's called a 4-3-3. Four defenders, three midfielders, three forwards. If you actually watch it in action, it's more of a 4-3-2-1. That Saka and Martinelli are a little bit deeper, and Jesus is a little further forward, and then you have your three midfielders, plus your your defenders in line in the back. and, and these formations are really talked about where people stand at the kickoff. Once the game begins, there's so much more intricacy in terms of where players are moving. Uh, Arsenal uh, under Arteta, and when he was an assistant manager under Pep Guardiola, who's the manager at, at Manchester City, if you watch them when they attack, what they'll do is they'll end up with five players forward. And part of the difficulty for a defense is figuring out who are those five players and who do you need to track mm-hmm. uh, in terms of who's making runs into different spaces. Uh, fullbacks can do what's called inverted, where they'll tuck inward to the center of the field, or they'll act as wingbacks. Uh, uh, Tierney was, was, would do a lot more of this, where he'll take the ball and just bomb right up the sideline, and all of a sudden he's playing up where Saka theoretically would be, but Saka has dropped back to cover. Someone else has moved into that position. So there's a lot of rotation and movement there. When it comes to the wings, um, either offensive or defensive, do you typically find that the right wings have a dominant right foot and the left wings have a dominant left foot since you're more often kicking in that direction where you'd want that to be your strong foot? I believe that's the case, but don't quote me on that. Um, yeah. It depends a lot on it's, it. Also depends tactically on what you expect them to do. Uh, you know, are they are they meant to make runs at goal? Are they meant to go up the wings and cross? It, there's there's a little depending on there, uh, but they they do care about footedness, especially. A, apparently, it's a big thing now in the last several years to worry about the footedness of your center backs. 
and make sure that hmm. they actually are playing on their on their the side of their stronger foot. Yeah. Okay. So there's at least something to it. That makes sense. It's okay. Cool. Thank you. That's a good overview. Um, my next question was something that I don't remember if it came from All or Nothing or something that the commentators were saying in early matches, but they were talking about the number nine of this club referring to Jesus or Jesus. I always want to say Jesus because that's how it would be in, in Spanish, but Jesus um, or talking about Ramsdale wanting the number one jersey. Is that an Arsenal thing? Is that a soccer thing? Is that a Premier League thing? Or am I making this up? <laughs> Is it a figment of my imagination? Yeah. So, so, so with numbers, a lot of this goes back to when the, the numbers were first instituted for, for years. And we're talking well into like the 1980s. There were rules about the players on the field. The starters were numbered 1 to 11. Oh. And those numbers roughly correlated to your position on the field. So the keeper was always number one. Your defenders are 2, 3, 4, and 5. Your midfielder is going to be 6, 7, and 8. And then up top, 9, 10, and 11. So it was meant to run upfield. And so... Oh, okay. Now, for a lot of reasons in the modern game, that's changed. You know, players have certain numbers that attach to them as sort of a personal brand. Um, and those numbers, some numbers are more important than others. So for a keeper, in the case of the keeper, to be to wear the number one shirt is is a clear indication that generally you are the number one keeper. Um, right. You're a starting goalie. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, for example, last year, Ramsdale, I was was he number 30 or something. I mean, that's a. Yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of a backup keeper number where Bernd Leno wore the number one because he had been the starter right. when the season began. Your, your numbers are set at the start of the season, and then in the off season, you know, as, as players come in and out, certain players will get numbers, and and the lower the number is an indication of where you stand with the team. It was a big deal. Uh, I guess it was the, before last season. Emil Smith Rowe was given the number ten shirt, which is a way of saying you're really important to us and you are going to be a major player. We want you to be a major player for Arsenal going forward. Martinelli this year took on number 11 coming into the season. Right. He's going to be someone who will start more regularly. Interesting. And am, am I, am I extrapolating incorrectly is that doesn't seem to be the case in other sports, right? For the most part, other sports that I've seen, you have some Jersey number that you got in high school that becomes your Jersey number. And you try to get that Jersey number on whatever team you're playing on. If there isn't another player who already has it. And it's really just like a sentimental thing. It has no relevance as far as posturing or anything within the team. Right. The only sport that really would compare would be American football where a lot of cases the numbers and they they fudge this more and more in the modern day but the numbers are actually for years in the NFL the numbers were defined by positions. Okay, so the same. Okay. Right. So offensive linemen wear numbers in the 60s and 70s. Wide receivers would wear 80s. Uh quarterbacks were uh 0 to 0 to 19. Okay. Um or 1 to 19. So in some cases the number was symbolic of where you played, which is sort of what you see here and, and right. you'll hear that you, that terminology you're using, right? The number 9, a number 8, he's a 6, he's he's the number 1. Some of those numbers are attached to certain styles of players. The, the number 9 is the striker, the goal scorer. Mm-hmm. So when they talked last year, you know, about having a number 9, well there was a number 9 on the roster it was Alexander Lacazette. The 9 is right there on his shirt. And yeah, but he's not Mm-hmm. He wasn't able to score goals. You don't want someone wearing the number nine. You want someone to be the nine. 
and, and Jesus interesting, yeah. And Jesus does that. And so there's a couple other positions that do that. We talked about number one as the keeper's number. Uh in the midfield, there's really three of them. There'll be uh the six, which is sort of the deep line defensive midfielder. So you'll talk about someone being a, a six. Like Thomas Party effectively is a six. He wears number five, but his position is in the mold of a six. Hmm. Uh there's an eight, which is a more advanced uh, midfielder, and it, uh, they sometimes they use the term box-to-box. We'll go from defensive box to the forward box. Martin Odegaard is a little bit more in that style. He wears the number eight, but is a little bit more advanced. And then the the most famous number probably is is the number 10. And there's all kinds of history and tradition steeped in who wears certain numbers and particularly what they mean in certain countries uh, because of the national styles that have developed. But the number 10 is generally reserved in a lot of places for sort of the, the central playmaker, uh, the hmm. point guard or the quarterback, the guy who directs everything, or in some cases is your best player. Um, probably the most famous one. Well, I mean, there's all kinds of famous ones, but a good example one would have been Diego Maradona who played for Argentina in the, he start, debuted in the late 70s, played mostly in the 80s and into the 90s, uh, was Argentina's number 10. Uh, essentially, in the Argentine national team was basically told, you do whatever you want with the ball, and we'll just fill in the spaces around you. Uh, he, he was that good. <laughs> yeah. uh, they won a World Cup with him doing that. So, huh. um, you know, sir, and, and every club is a little different. You know, for certain clubs, a number is associated with certain players, certain types of players. You know, for Arsenal, the... the probably the more famous number, at least in, in the most recent years, is the number 14, which was worn by Thierry Henry, who's the club's all-time leading goal mm-hmm. scorer. And so, you know, to to hand a striker the number 14, well, that would really say something about the, the club and what they thought about him. But even then, it's still a little... Like, soccer is much less attached to certain numbers than you'll see in a lot of other sports. They don't retire numbers the way a lot of American sports do. Right. That was something I was going to ask about. It seems from what you've said earlier, but that wouldn't make sense in this context. Yeah. Right. They just, it's, it's, and I've had conversations of this with a, you know, some European friends who in the U S are seeing that happening and numbers being retired. Like, what do you mean? It's retired. No one wears it. What do you mean? No one wears it anymore. It's, um, <laughs> but then, you know, there are different ones that do that. And famously the, uh, the Dallas Cowboys, Use the number 88. It's not retired. It is passed essentially from top wide receiver to top wide receiver. So if, you, if you're if you a receiver for the Dallas Cowboys and you're handed the jersey number 88, you know, it was Michael Irvin's number. It was Drew Pearson's number. There's a lot of really great players in that team's history that wore that. And so it says something about your place for that particular team. Okay. Well, thank you. That's all. That's all good info. Learned a lot. Uh, some maybe one small question before we before we sign off. I think it'll probably be pretty pretty easy to answer. So I noticed, and some of this confusion was certainly because I was going back and forth between the last season and the current season when I was first coming up to speed. But the jerseys change a lot, and we we talked about this a little bit in a prior episode where you have the three separate uniforms each season. Do those change exactly one season? Do those change on season boundaries? Because it seemed like in All or Nothing, it seemed like they started wearing the jersey that I recognized from from current games that had already happened in the current season. Um, So how often do the designs change? The designs at this point will change almost every year at this point. What you're designing essentially is a t-shirt. Yeah. 
and, and a lot of them start with the very, the very basic design. We sort of talked about that. And Arsenal's basic design is a red shirt with white sleeves. Yep. And what you're going to see every year is some variation on a red shirt with white sleeves. And there are a lot of different things you can do with that. Not all of them are good, but, but that's, you know, <laughs> it depends how traditional you are with that. And then, of course, they come out with a variety of the, the change kits that we talked about, the seconds and the thirds. Right. Uh, they generally, at this point, have been swapping them out every year. Um, the big the big difference that I noticed between last season and this season was I'm pretty sure in the 2021 to 2022 season that they didn't have collars. It was just a more plain T-shirt design. And then they added the collar going into this season, which I saw in some of the later games featured in All or Nothing. Right. So you'll you'll see that. And every year they talk about the differences in design. So I'm, I'm just sort of looking at last year's home kit and like it's it's white sleeves, but it's also white panels down the side of the shirt. They have the Adidas stripes on the shoulders are in blue, uh, whereas this year's uh, they're, they're The stripes are white. The sleeve only the sleeves are white. There's less detailing of certain kinds. They have the collar, all these kind of different things they could do to make the design a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And there's all sorts of websites that track these things. Uh, you can see year by year, uh, the shade of red will be different. There'll be sublimated patterns Hmm. on certain shirts. So there's a lot of different things you can do to basically make a different design for people to buy every single year. How far back do the sponsors on the front of the shirt go? Because that's one thing that the only American sport I can think of that has any, anything close to that degree of sponsor visibility is like NASCAR. Um, none of the other sports where you, none of the other team sports, I should say, none of the other athletic, like non motor sports. I don't, I don't think you ever see sponsors on the jerseys like that. Um, you, you are starting to, that leagues are approving for all sorts of revenue reasons, approving ad patches. The NBA's done it, I think, for a couple of years now. The NHL is about to, is doing it this year. Oh, okay. Uh, baseball is toying with the idea. The NFL can get away with it because the NFL can do whatever it wants because they are the NFL. Um, you started seeing these, the shirt sponsor, the big, the big advertisement in the center of the shirt. Uh, looking this up for Arsenal, I'm seeing it as far back as 1981. Huh, Okay. And what's interesting about that is the the shirt sponsor sort of becomes part of the way that people think or talk about the team. So for years in the 80s and into the the mid late 90s, Arsenal sponsor was JVC, the electronics company. Right. For a couple of years, they were uh, Dreamcast, the the old Sony (laughs) system. Uh, Sega. Sorry, I can't I can't let that slide by Sega. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, you should. They, you know what? I, I, you're not the only one learning things here. That's okay. Um, and then for a couple of years was O2, which is a British uh, telecom mobile phone company. Right. And then since they moved into the Emirates Stadium, it's been Emirates Airlines. And so they have the, the Fly Emirates, or now it says Emirates uh, Fly Better, I guess. Um, yep. But that's that, that shirt sponsor has been around for a while. And it's, you know, it's, it's a tremendous source of revenue for the team. And, and there's a lot of times that, Shirt sponsor sort of becomes tied to the memories you have of certain clubs or certain eras or certain seasons because that's that's what they were wearing. That's part of the well, look. Yeah, and that's why I had to ask the question because it is the most prominent thing on their uniform. You see that way, way bigger and more noticeably than any than the little patch that they have on the chest that's that actually is the team's logo. It's by far the biggest graphical element on it. So that's that's interesting. 
It is. And, you know, that that causes some uh, some consternation. There are people who who don't like that. I mean, the crest is typically small. It sits on the left side of the chest, you know, over the heart. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, but there are some that toy with putting it in the center at times and moving things around. And, and soccer fans get weirdly traditional about some stuff and really like or dislike certain things. Um, and crest position is one of those. If you're a uniform geek, they will they will. Some people get really bothered by that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. I think that about wraps it up. Thanks for joining us at Gooner U. We are on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and some other places. Appreciate you subscribing to our show and sharing it with your friends. Again, my name is Dove, and you can find me on Twitter at Dove Frankel. You can always send feedback there. With me, as always, is Keith, and you can find him in a pub watching Arsenal matches, even when it's six o'clock in the morning. Go, you gunners.